0: The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 14th chapter. Glory Glory to you, you, O Lord. Lord. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy, and Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and you would then be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. College football coach a while back asked his one of his former players, if he'd help his alma mater do some recruiting, the player said, Sure, coach. What kind of player are we looking for? Coach said, You know there's that fellow, you knock him down, he stays down. Yeah, I do. We don't want him, do we, coach? No, we don't. Then there's that fellow, you knock him down, and he gets up, and then you knock him down again, and he stays down. We don't want him either, do we, coach? No, no, we don't want him. But then there's the fellow. You knock him down, he gets up. 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 That's the one we want, isn't it, coach? No, we don't want him either. I want you to find the guy who's knocking everybody down. (sighs) The guy who's knocking everybody down, that's the one we want on our team. The big kahuna, that's the one we want on our side. Numero uno, the goat. If I can't be them, I want to be near them. And I want want you to be near enough to see me with them. I want you to know that the big dog knows me. One day, Luke 14 says, there was a big dog, a leader of the Pharisees, who invited a bunch of his yes men, his lap dogs, and Jesus to his place for dinner. And it says that all of them, as they were sitting there, were watching Jesus, which normally would be a good thing. I mean, watch Jesus, you may learn a few good things, right? Except in this case, they weren't watching Jesus, hoping to see something they could learn from him. They were watching Jesus, hoping to see something they could judge him for. They weren't watching and wondering what he was going to do. They were watching and wondering what he was going to do wrong. Jesus, if you know much about him, was often a lot of times pretty quick to oblige in situations like that because the fact is that a lot of religious people are into rules primarily and how they look, measured especially by their favorite rules uh, compared to others, where Jesus was way more into grace and how love looks reaching to others. So they were all there at dinner at this big dog's house, and he and all of his rule-keeping lapdogs were watching Jesus to find something to judge him for, and Jesus did quickly oblige when a man who was sick found his way into this gathering of good, rule-obeying religious people, and Jesus healed him. Even though it was a Sabbath day and Sabbath laws, Sabbath rules, everybody, every rule keeper knows this. Although they didn't say it when asked, but they knew, healing somebody should wait until the next day. And the Pharisees tisk tisk tisked because they were absolutely and above all into rules and using them to judge others. Jesus, on the other hand, who of course knew that rules have their place, are in their place important, you can't parent a child without setting some rules before them, healed the man anyway because to him rules weren't ultimately and above all absolutely everything else important. He was way, way more into the importance of grace and what love any day of the week when it gets a chance can do reaching out to others. But then after this important religious big dog and his wannabe important religious lapdog said anything about that, Jesus said something to them, revealing that guess what? While they'd been watching him, he'd been watching them. And especially what he'd been watching was the politics of pecking order in lapdog world. As all the wannabes who knew they didn't at this belong at the center of the head table, not yet anyway, but give them time. They didn't belong at the center of the head table, not yet. But nevertheless, they pushed and they shoved and they scrambled and they kissed up to be at a place at least somewhere at the head table. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Jesus watched them and then said to the wannabes, When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit down and Sit at the head table up front. Sit at that little table at the back by the door to the kitchen. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. All who humble themselves will be exalted. And then without waiting for a reply, he turned to the big dog who was the host of the party. And he said to him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite friends or relatives or rich folks who can repay you. Otherwise, they'll invite you back and then you'll be repaid. No, when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. And that's our text for today in which Jesus pretty clearly says two things, both of which are clearly countercultural when it comes to a lot of things the world says and in fact seems these days to be saying more and more loudly than ever. Pretty clear and clearly countercultural thing number one, In a world which says, promote yourself, Jesus says, humble yourself. And pretty clear and clearly countercultural thing number two, in a world which says, give to others so that they will in turn give back to you, Jesus says, give precisely to those who can't, who won't, who may not ever give something back to you. Let's start with that humble yourself thing. Humility, uh, in my occasionally humble opinion, is an often misunderstood thing. I say that because of the fact that I think people often think that what humility means is that you you disparage yourself and your own worth. You put yourself down. You think nothing of yourself. Not true, including, I would say, not true biblically. The humble person isn't the person who thinks less of herself, but rather the person who thinks of herself a little less. Humility really doesn't mean thinking of others as so much better than you. It means more often thinking of others instead of just you. Until the last six months or so of her life, Barb never missed church. She was in a wheelchair, but her assisted living facility gave her a ride to worship every Sunday. On the front of her wheelchair was a kind of, kind of a desktop tray sort of thing, where invariably there would be some kind of a craft or a knitting project that she was working on, and all those projects were things that she would give away. Many of them were given to me. She was looking always for material. One of the little crafty things she made was made using the plastic cups I would use when I took communion to her, and then she would save these, and she had a particular craft. It, I mean, it wasn't particularly spectacular, but it was particularly love. As far as the world measures things, Barb did not have much. She told me once that she she looked for good deals on craft items and yarn at the dollar store. Not just on any day, but on sale at the dollar store. Unless she had extra money and she felt she could upgrade to a fancier store, in which case she would splurge and she would go to Kmart. Every year, I know for a fact, she knitted all kinds of caps and scarves and gloves to be given away to anybody who needed them, presumably people who weren't as blessed as her and therefore couldn't afford the dollar store or a splurge trip to Kmart. I saw her for the last time between now and heaven, uh, the day before we were leaving on a youth group service project. She was on hospice care by then. She was knitting. I asked her what she was knitting. She said, it's something for Jesus. I said, Barb, you've been knitting for Jesus your whole life. A couple days later, I was gone, but my colleague later told me that uh, she went to see her, and things were starting to shut down. It was pretty obvious she'd be going home to see Jesus soon. Her granddaughter was there, And her granddaughter was crying. And Barb, who was pretty much working on dying by now, actively dying, said to my colleague with such sadness, this is hard for her. Humility, my goodness, you could take that dear woman's heart down to its last few hours, but you couldn't shut it off to the hearts and the hurts of others, even her death wasn't about her or her struggle, but about her granddaughter's struggle. I want to remember Barb dying and thinking of others, dying and knitting for others, dying and doing for others, dying and feeling for others. When I think of the fact that, biblically speaking, a humble person isn't the person who thinks less of herself, but rather the person who thinks of herself a little less. Humility doesn't mean thinking of others is so much better than you. It means more about thinking of others instead of only you. It's always been a rare thing. seems to me rarer than ever of late. But it's a powerful thing. Unfortunately, it's also kind of a slippery thing, humility. Because humility, though it by all means leads to actions like, for example, knitting stocking caps for those who need them and being concerned about your granddaughter, even though you're the one who's dying. Humility, even though of course it leads to visible actions, isn't, I think, most of all defined ultimately by actions. It's defined, I think, finally by the heart. And, well, when it comes to the heart, maybe this is just me. But darn it, I know that I can do visible, humble-looking things while simultaneously, invisibly, in my heart, uh, be kind of proud of myself for doing them. I I can act visibly humble, but be conniving and political, thinking about something I can get or accomplish for it. And of course, if you're not overly shocked yet by this, um, this horrible truth-telling, um, the truth is that I can act humble. And then in the back of my mind, uh, find a corner in my mind that thinks I'm spiritually superior. That I'm better for you, better than you, for it. Then, of course, there's the other slippery thing about trying to be humble. That being that the moment I conclude that I am it is exactly the moment I'm not it. Because guess what? It's not humble to think you're humble. Which means that if you want to work on humility, and I'm going to suggest that be a very good thing these days more than ever. Uh, unless you want to just about kill yourself yourself. Um, do it with a little bit of sense of humor about the fickleness of the human heart. Because I think God, being the God of grace, God is uh, has a pretty good sense of humor about the fickleness of our hearts, too. So just, you know, you've gotta you got to be able to smile. But if you want to work on humility, which would be a good thing, because it surely does seem to be declining in our world today. We are much poorer as a result. I mean, we don't have enough barbs in our world. If you'd like to work on becoming one. If you'd like to work on becoming humble, approach it like this. Instead of working on humility by turning inward to give yourself a grade compared to others, don't do that. Work on humility by turning outward and giving of yourself to others. Be self-aware by all means. Know yourself and your fickle heart. But when it comes to humility, don't obsess about some grade you think you should give to you and your heart. Instead, just do it. Do things for others, not just for you. And humility, not as a grade, but as a grace, will in grace's time be given to you. Care for others, not just you. And humility, over time, without you even needing to know it, will gradually, evermore, become you." First person who pointed it out to me was Richard Foster in his classic book, um, Celebration of Discipline, in which he says, and this is paraphrased because I couldn't find my book. I must have given it out to somebody. I'm, so, I'm humble like that. <laughs> he says that you don't work on humility by trying to be humble. You work on humility by serving the needs of others. What's more, he said, if you really want to work on humility, find some ways to serve the needs of others in ways for which you are specifically not noticed or recognized or publicly thanked or rewarded. And when you do, if there is pride in your heart, as surely there is in the corners of most all of our hearts, that pride in that moment of doing something good and not being noticed will scream It will scream out for attention. It will tell you to tell people what you did. But keep on doing for others without public acclaim or notice or reward. And gradually, he says, the cries of pride in your heart become softer and less and less and less. And then even finally, there are no more as without you even needing to notice humility, not as a grade, but as a grace, has become you. That rhythm of growing humility by doing humility, I think, is at least part of what Jesus is getting at when after telling the folks around the table to be humble instead of scrambling for the best seats at the table, he immediately goes on to say, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your siblings or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they invite you in return and then you're repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, The lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. Do you hear that? If humility means growing in the direction of a life that's every bit as much about others as it is about you, then grow in that direction, Jesus says, and doing more for others who won't or can't repay you, you will actually be something better than repaid. You'll be blessed. And those blessings will not only be blessings in heaven, though they will, those blessings will also be heaven's blessings here and now in the heart. Barb would say, absolutely. As not needing to be repaid, you become richer in your heart. As not needing to be thanked, you become more thankful in your heart. As not needing to be noticed, you become more noticing from the heart. Not needing to be number one, you indeed become humble of heart. And above all, not needing the friendship or blessing of the world's big dogs, you show the world the blessing and the love of your best friend, Jesus, alive in your heart and alive in your love for those whom he so loves. And you know who are those he so loves, right? He so loves all who in so many ways at all need loving. And he just thinks it happens to be great that he and they have you right there thinking not only of you. Amen.